Welcome back to the show. My guest in this segment is Bernadette Bowden-Albala, Director and Founding Dean of the Program in Public Health and Professor of the Department of Population, Health and Disease Prevention and Department Epidemiology at the Samuele College of Health Sciences at UC Irvine. In this interview, we have the benefit of her applied experience providing much needed insight about the COVID pandemic. Internationally recognized in the social epidemiology of stroke and cardiovascular disease, Dr. Bowden Albala designs strategies for prevention and preparedness. She worked with New York City's Dominican community to demonstrate that a culturally tailored, skills-based approach helped stroke patients significantly lower their blood pressure one year later, translating into a nearly 40% reduction in the risk of having another stroke. She's co-created courses with UNICEF and the United Nations World Food Program focused on Ebola and polio and new systems to ensure equitable access to healthy foods. In addition, Bernadette Bowden-Albala helped develop the Cross-Continental Masters in Public Health, a one-year program that combines classroom learning, collaborative research with faculty mentors, and public health practice experience across three continents. A professor of public health, neurology, and dentistry at New York University. She served then as interim chair of the Department of Epidemiology. Her other prior appointments before joining UCI in July of 2019 include the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health, College of Global Public Health Department of Neurology at Langone School of Medicine, Department of Epidemiology College of Dentistry, New York University, the Department of Health and Evidence and Policy, the Department of Neurology, the Institute of Translational Epidemiology at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, then the Department of Neurology at Mailman School Public Health Center for the Study of Health Inequalities at Columbia University. She completed her Bachelor's of Arts in Anthropology at Queens College, her Master's in Public Health and Tropical Medicine, at PhD in Sociomedical Science at Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. We are so glad to have her set aside time from her hugely busy calendar. Welcome to Ask a Neighbor, Dean Bowden-Albala. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here and to talk with you about this really important topic. Thank you. And I have to take pause. I'm thinking, what a world of difference since only a month ago that I hosted Orange County Health Agency pediatric epidemiologist, Dr. Michelle Chung, that so much not only is, has developed, but so much is learned and so many protocols have been changing and stepping up. And I hope we can cover that from your public health perspective. Well, first, Dean Bowden-Albala, how are you doing? How, and how is it being here in Southern California while former colleagues of yours battle in the COVID epicenter in New York City? Yeah, I, I, thank you. Um, you know, it's tough. It's, um, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm really happy to be here at UCI in beautiful Southern sunny California. And um, I've had, I've been here since July and I've had, you know, tremendous opportunity to meet really interesting people, both at the university um, and uh, throughout the community. 
um, you know, of Irvine and Newport Beach, Laguna. It's really been um, very, very nice. And, and everyone has been very welcoming. You know, I leave my mom uh, back in New York, and uh, she's actually uh, self-isolating with her uh, 99-year-old sister. And um, I speak daily to her and uh, daily to colleagues from New York City, where I basically spent my entire um, public health career. Um, You know, one of the the things I'm most proud of uh, in Orange County and in California is that um, we actually uh, responded very early and very quickly to this threat. And uh, we went into shelter basically March 12th. Um, at least at UCI, with the county following and the state following, you know, days later, and we have been truly social distancing, and that's making a huge difference. In New York, they didn't respond as quickly, and now, of course, they have terrible things. It's a very grim setting in New York. There's a lot of people. It's a very dense city, um, and, you know, the, we always knew, I think everybody knew that any kind of major infectious uh, epidemic or pandemic as we have now is, is going to hit more dense, highly populated areas worse. And uh, it really has hit very, very hard. And really, though, it's been in New York City, and I know we'll talk about this a little bit later, that we see this whole issue of um, race ethnic disparities really unveiling. We didn't see that in other countries. And it's really shocking. But I am trying to provide strength and wisdom to my friends in New York, and they're doing the same with us. And, um, you know, it's good to have that communication. So you talked about the response from the campus, then the state, and then the county. I'd like to just have you mention what kind of leadership does the World Health Organization, what meaningful leadership does it offer, what its connection is with local public health management? You know, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, so I think the World Health Organization is there to do, um, you know, rapid investigation and to provide overall guidance, not just to the United States, but to countries throughout the world. They have a lot of expertise in working um, in very different settings. So rural versus urban, um, dense, large uh, city states versus really um, suburban and, as I said, rural. Um, and they, they're, you know, using an evidence base that oftentimes the first on the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, they send in their scientists, their epidemiologists. They really have some of the, I think, earliest knowledge about anything that emerges. So how do we interact with WHO as a local county or as a state or even as a country? I think that we work with them in trying to understand their guidance. Um, Sometimes we provide expertise as well. But, But I think we take the larger picture and we have to translate it to what's actually happening where we are. This has been a very interesting epidemic or now pandemic. China uh, is a very different place than we are, extremely dense, very, very urban. South Korea, Italy, Spain, 
now the U.S. Um, we haven't really people haven't really talked about Africa, and it's it's interesting because it's just slowly emerging now in Africa. So the World Health Organization would provide guidance and probably have some unique experiences for us locally. But I do think at the end of the day, we have to take that guidance and we have to translate that into sort of the local setting and how what's happening or emerging locally. And for us, that's really here in Orange County. With less than 1% of Californians being tested, Dr. Bowden Albala, how do you recommend that public officials manage this ordeal? Yeah, that's a good question. Certainly, um, testing has really been a disaster and it's it's been a disaster at the national level um and you know i think that we we probably should have as a country have worked a little bit more with the world health organization when things started to emerge here and maybe taken some of their advice and on testing and used some of their diagnostic tests early because I know we were trying to get up to speed, but mm -hmm. that really took a long time. Um, and so now we are left, especially here in California, with, with very, very few people having been tested. And the problem with testing, there's so many problems with testing. Okay, um, so go ahead. We need, but the first overall picture is we don't have any sense yet of how many people have been exposed to this virus right. and were either had mild symptoms or had or were asymptomatic. Okay. And so not knowing that leaves us kind of helpless in the sense that if that when we try to predict everything, how we're going to get out of this, when do we stop, you know, the, the significant sort of shelter in place, when do we get back to some normality. In order to understand when that can occur, we have to really understand how COVID-19 has gone into our communities. And so you can test to say one who has COVID-19 and who hasn't. Um, and, and in New York, the testing numbers are so much greater in terms of people having access to that. And so that's the first thing, who's sick and who's not. And among those that are sick, how many people are symptomatic, how many people need hospitalization, and how many people are asymptomatic. So I'm sure you saw in the news overnight, um, they went and tested the entire crew of that Navy ship um, where there was the whole firing of the- of The, the Roosevelt. Captain. Yeah. Yes. And um, the data from the testing, you know, demonstrated that 60% of the ship was, I believe, asymptomatic. Um, there's some other work out of New York City um, in a small series of women who were pregnant and delivering. Again, 13% of women in that, in that small study were COVID positive, but asymptomatic. Only 2% were symptomatic. And so the question really is, how do we make estimates about who's right. had the virus and who I'm, hasn't. And the reason I was just going to say, um, the reason, Claudia, that we need to know that is because that helps us to understand how hard or, or, or not that this COVID will really hit 
for us, Orange County. And so what that, what that means is that, you know, we're talking about something called herd immunity, right? right so right. it's the immunity of the underlying population um, that protects people that don't have the immunity from lessening the, the spread of disease, from getting that disease. So if you have, if, if around you in a circle were six people, okay, and every one of those people had had COVID, okay, and, um, and you, you didn't, you wouldn't get it because nobody there would be introducing you to it if they had had it, I should say, and recovered from it. Um, and so we need to understand what proportion, and there's a big difference between right. five or eight or 10% of the community having had the disease, having made antibodies and, and potentially protecting you from that versus 95%. Um, you know, vaccines give us herd immunity at about 95 or 98%. And that means that we are assured that there's a very low likelihood of getting it. So to make a prediction about when we can go back to normal, we have to have a sense of the, of the, the spread in the community. And um, and so we can do that in a couple of ways, right? We can test everybody right now to see if they've had COVID, okay? Right. And that would be the kind of what we would call a PCR diagnostic test, meaning you have active virus or you don't have active virus. Right. Or we could do what's now coming out as antibody testing, right? And what that tells you, that does not tell you if you have active virus. What that tells you is if you've had it, if you've been exposed, if you've had that virus already, and it tells you that because you start making antibodies to the virus, two kinds of antibodies. And what happens with those antibodies is that it gives us a sense of not only did you have it, but when did you have it? So early, I mean, so six weeks ago versus maybe, you know, two months ago or something like that. So what we recommend is as soon as we can get our antibody tests up to speed, and there's a lot of controversy about antibody testing, because the problem, one of the problems at least, with COVID-19 is that it is a coronavirus, and the most common coronavirus is the common cold. Mm. And so what we would want to make sure of is that we don't have what we would call cross-reactivity. And so, in other words, the, the antibody test picks up that you've had a cold and says that you've had COVID-19. We don't want that. So and that's so where those false, want... po the false negatives are false, a false positive or false negative? So a false positive would be if you never had coronavirus, but you've had a common cold Correct. and the antibody okay. test picks that up. And a false negative would be that the, that the test doesn't pick up the titers at all yeah and so you've had it but maybe your titers were low it doesn't pick it up and so people think that you're still that you have no immunity to it and and just one other problem with all of this testing is the other unknown is we don't know if this is going to end up more like influenza where it comes back every year or right. if it's going to provide a lifelong immunity like polio, for example, right? Right, and right. So, and it is looking, Claudia, a little bit more like it's probably going to be like influenza. 
Um, and that means that people, it looks like there have been cases now that people have been reinfected. But the data is really out on that, right? Because right. what we're, everyone's trying to do is respond to the crisis at hand, getting people healthy, protecting them from bad outcomes, like going into an a, a intensive care unit, like being put on a ventilator and like death. And so the focus has been treatment, but at the same time, public health needs to make sure that we're doing everything that we can because we're really the forecasters of tomorrow, right? We're the people that need to have a sense of what, is this gonna hit again? When is this gonna hit? Is this one surge and then we don't see anything for a year or ever again? Or, or is there gonna be multiple surges? And so we need all of this information to try to help to make predictions. So the, this, this testing, it's a driver of diagnostics, in time, it's a driver of surveilling, of contact tracing, and then they're talking at the recent White House, at, the, at this taping, the, the White House task force talking about sentinel testing, and then they're right. talking about moving from, we're not in phase one yet, but and then how would that would look, and then how it would look to phase two. So I don't know, I guess my general question of wrapping this all up is, what with your public health season experience, are you concerned about so little data to drive all of these initiatives going forward? Yeah, I am, I am very concerned that we don't have enough data. We didn't even have enough data to really predict when surge was coming and if it is coming or what is that looking like. We don't have enough data to really say, hey, we're going when can we be safe enough to get out? But the good news is that the antibody testing is getting better. And I think we are within weeks of having some very good antibody testing kits. And I have to say that we've got some really great folks at uh, University California, Irvine, who have devoted their entire lives to sort of immunological research and testing and virology. And they are among, you know, re, uh, people renowned, national, internationally renowned experts. And so we will begin surveillance in a number of different ways in collaboration with the Orange County Healthcare Agency. And I think that that's going to start within a week to 10 days. And so, Yes, I, just, I was just going to say that I was fortunate enough to have had the opportunity to interview the author for the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine last week, and he talked about the resources in CIRM's research were able yes. to get, get some of this going right away. I just want to mention, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Dr. Bernadette Bowden Albala, Director and Founding Dean of the Program of Public Health and Professor at the Department of Population Health and Disease Prevention and the Department of Epidemiology at UC Irvine's Samuele College of Health Sciences. We're talking about the testing is now the antibodies, this is a blood draw, but the saliva is picking up other indicators, correct? Yeah, and so the saliva is really, we are we're not, the saliva, I think, has a lot of problems still as a test oh. is only being used in real emergency settings. 
Okay. Because I, I think it was, there was supposed to be the benefit of it being a more remotely administered kind of test, like drive-by. That's drive right. And I think, you know, we're, we're very, so Claudia, absolutely. We're very, very concerned about, you know, the, the, the repeated exposure that our healthcare workers are getting through testing right now to do the, um, the PCR, the COVID diagnostic test. It's a swab. It goes all the way up your nose. It is not comfortable, but it is important to do, similar to what we would do for influenza. Um, and it's wonderful that they, that they have come out with a saliva test. They are still testing that. You know, they're trying to launch that, and uh, it's very exciting. Um, but it is not really publicly available yet. But we are really looking forward to that happening because that will allow us to do a lot more testing. And that's what we really need. You know, um, I think that in a community as large as we are um, in Orange County, three plus million people, the optimum number of tests per day How many? should be something on the order, right, you know, to deal with something like this, something on the order of five and we are not near that no, but we, we aren't. are getting no yesterday we had 429 uh, tests done by uh, I think the public health labs um, but we have about 3,000 uh, tests that we can um, do, you know that we are, that we actively are able to do very quickly if we had to over the next couple of days and testing is a, it's all about one having to get tested. So making that appointment with your doctor and getting the okay to have testing, because we still want to have testing done in people who have symptoms, right? right. Um, we, and then it is also about, we've had shortages of swabs. We've had shortages of reagents. Um, and so mm. it's just, you know, every time we think we're moving forward, I don't just mean we here in Orange County, I mean across the Nationally. country. Mm -hmm. Every time we think we're moving forward, there's a day in which we have a backlog and, you know, we, have, we get reduced, our productivity gets reduced by about 30%. So this is really frustrating. So, um, so hopefully the saliva will be introduced quickly for, for use everywhere and we can move that forward. And is there like a bit of a cost benefit that saliva might be a, a, a bit lesser expense to collect and process? Um, you know, it may be a little bit less expensive. It, it'll take less time to, um, it, certainly to collect. Okay. Um, but, you know, I, I don't have all the information about processing See, right that's, now. See, that's um, telling, right? There's so much to, yeah. to, to know. Oh, so um, I guess... I briefly, I lay at your feet. I, I'm, I want you to evaluate how you feel like the Orange County Health Agency, their board of supervisors are managing this pandemic locally. Really, I want you to, and what has your role been as a public health academic professional in contributing what OC Health Agency has been doing? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, you know, the first question you asked me today was, you know, what was our sort of role with WHO? Right. Does WHO have connection to local? And I think of, of really the recent diseases that of modern time, this one is particularly, uh, I think, particularly needs to be focused on what's happening locally. Um, and so more, more than ever, 
the local health agencies play a role because the, the disease is, you know, it's unveiling itself a little bit different depending upon, again, if you're a large city, if you're a rural area, and a part of that's access, but, but part of it is also this whole issue of social distancing and spread. And so I, I'm going to say only really positive things about the Orange County Health Agency. Uh, we have been collaborative even before this. Um, I, I, they, they welcomed me uh, when I came to um, UCI and um, Nicole Quick, who is the health officer, you know, said, we want to work with you and we really want to work in collaboration to work together. And, um, you know, it's not easy being a local health department because they have to report up to the state and then there's federal mandates, but it's not, it's not an easy, you know, to manage. But um, I have to say, we have been working with Nicole and her group on um, a number of things really for weeks to months. And so some of the things that we've rounded up our expertise at, you know, in public health and then throughout the university to work on things like one, surge. When is this surging? What are the models here locally? How is that different than, say, a, a national model or a, a model for a city like Los Angeles? Um, and so we've been sharing data and looking at this and meeting really extremely frequently, day-to-day -day updates all the time on surge. We're working with them on surveillance. We're gonna we're working with them to to do surveillance throughout the county using bloods from clinics, de-identified bloods, just to give us a sense of what the, the prevalence of COVID-19 looks like around the county. And uh, Matt Zahn, who is their uh, infectious yeah. disease uh, specialist, has been really tremendous in working on this issue of surveillance. We're working with them on forecasting. What does this look like? How do we think about social distancing? We're working with them. Susan Wong, who is a wonderful infectious disease epidemiologist at the Medical Center, who works with us in public health is do, is going to start doing really tremendous work and has been, I think, already in nursing homes, working again with Orange County Healthcare Agency. They're interested in um, interventions that we can do, right? So what can we do? This whole issue of preparedness, the most important thing that you talked about, how everything's changing in this, and it is true. Protocols are changing daily, PPE, everything is changing. But one of the things that has remained constant is hand washing, the importance of hand washing and vigilance. And I know you're laughing, but... No, no, no. I'm saying hand washing is the analog of, of 2020 medicine, right? It's, it's, that's exactly it's a right. That's but exactly right. Just being the journalist role here. I wanted to, though, call out that I'm sure the health agency could do more had they a more invigorated leadership style from our Orange County Board of Supervisors who, in public meetings, aren't that keen about transparency, aren't that curious about what are some choices and what are better practices and that kind of thing. So it's sort of like, here's a health entity that has a ceiling with the kind of board of supervisor leadership. And, and when I compare them to what's going on in LA, what I compare with the governor's office, I just feel like we, our 3.3 million population, 
we're entitled to a little bit better of that. But that's on me to say that I know you've got to keep your collaborative best form with the, the public office holders. So I'll, I'll put that on me to say that. So let's, let's talk about, I, this is one of the many moments I've been waiting for with you is let's talk about the trends and I'm, we only know what's reported. We're never going to know what wasn't reported. So first, you know, the commentary was this COVID is an affluent person's disease. It's somebody came back from their ski trip in the Alps. Somebody went to the biogenetic meeting in Boston, and then they flew and spread it around. But, but now we are seeing a much different incidence of COVID, both with the cases and the actual death rates. So let's Let's have you talk about now where it's becoming disaggregated and even that's a political call is how willing different states are going to disaggregate the data about the death rates in and let's talk about that first and then talk about what this is signaling about the way our public health performs over generations to get us to this kind of disparity. Yeah, I mean, it's. It is absolutely outrageous that we are seeing this unveiling of uh, increased death and disease, morbidity and mortality among um, underserved minority populations, among African-Americans, among Latinx populations, among the poor. And, you know, shame, shame on us throughout the United States, shame on us. This is an infectious disease, not a chronic disease. We should not be seeing these kinds of huge disparities, um, and we are seeing them. And um, it, it's, it, it really is unbelievable. So, so the question is, what, why are we seeing them? And, and to your point, is this a symptom of a broken down, um, you know, healthcare system, and I would say probably yes, that's one issue. Access is one issue. Um, but everything about this disease in the United States, um, you know, has been problematic because there have been, or at least we're now seeing, you know, disadvantages always to underserved and poor populations. So let's take essential versus non-essential, right? Okay. So if you're non-essential, you're staying home and you're sheltering in place. And if you're essential, well, of course, you're needed. And so we get that, um, you know, and we, are, we say, you know, thank you to the firemen and thank you to EMS and thank you to, the, to all of the healthcare workers who are front line. But what we also need to say is thank you for putting yourselves on the line, essential workers who are unskilled laborers, janitorial, sanitation, um, you know, um, all of these other kinds of um, positions, you're out without protective gear and you're seeing and serving the public and you have to do it because if you don't do it, that your, your kids are not gonna be fed. And so, so we have the second thing. So we have access. Before, before, have, I yeah. wanted, to the point about the essential, I, I noticed it was a very early indicator and I don't think it was framed, but the fact that the traffic reports 
were reporting a heavy traffic when we were starting to shelter in place there still was heavy traffic backing up commuting back in the evening to the inland empire and we know who's living there it's the essential workers the underserved right. and uh you know lower income homes that are more affordable out in the inland empire so i thought that is a data point we better start paying attention that was very very early so on to the that the that's, that's right so you were talking to a second point uh, about healthy food availability or oh yeah so i so i just wait so i just want to say so essential workers that's an issue access that's an issue and then to, to talk about healthy food i want to talk about what's emerging as really important risk factors yes. um, for let's call it poor prognostic outcomes so for people that are having uh breathing problems that need to be in the intensive care unit for people that are dying and even for people um to some extent that are hospitalized and so you know i think we saw in italy that this was very much initially at least the disease um, of the elderly we saw that everybody in china was at 98 percent of people in china who were hospitalized and on vents had multiple other comorbid conditions and what's happening here is that we're seeing that what is the what are the most significant risk factors well they are um, hypertension they are diabetes they are obesity okay and not necessarily when all is said and done age is not going to be as important i i, yes. I guarantee it i'm seeing right. the numbers that's getting so clear just, what i what what we're going to call something like it's called the metabolic syndrome this constellation of these different kinds of risk factors so you know again um blood pressure uh, diabetes obesity and then some sort of lipid profile and it's, it's kind of strange to say why is this how is this connected with you know this this horrible viral syndrome and we don't know fully but one of the really? things we do know is that that metabolic syndrome is highly prevalent in African Americans. It's highly prevalent in um, Latinx populations, and it's becoming more prevalent across the United States overall. In fact, data suggests that in the last decade, we've gone from 25% of all adults having this metabolic syndrome to 34%. And metabolic syndrome is, is you know, has a lot to do with the not only obviously physiology, but things like exercise and healthy eating and sort of a lot of lifestyle behaviors so it's all coming together one other factor with, but yeah i want to is exposure to environmental hazards too yes and so we have you know i think we need to that is a really excellent point i think we need to really look at that i mean exposure to environmental hazards you know could obviously alter immune response and we also know that in exposure to things that are exposure to discrimination, exposure mm. to um, work situations which are um, unhealthy, which people have no control over, that, that those things can also alter immune response and, and are connected with this whole metabolic syndrome. Wow. So, so all of this is panning out in a very interesting way. Um, and, um, you know, we, we have to be responsive. So one question I ask as, a, as someone who does a lot of work in the area is, 
can we be doing something besides just hand washing and face mask wearing and social distancing? Can we help folks that are at higher risk to try yes. to reduce that risk? So next year when COVID comes back again, that they are more physically prepared to handle that. Okay. And, um, and, and so that's a question that people haven't asked, but I think we need to ask. So that, that kind of physical exertion is a, it's getting undermined. That opportunity is being precluded by how people are trying to figure out how to shelter in place. They don't know how to go out and sort of fortify what, what they can in their, their health constitution to deal with that. Right, how to Met eat healthier, how to exercise. All of it. That's right. And, and how to decrease stress in an extremely stressful situation. So first of all, for those of you who've just joined us, I'm so pleased to have uh, as my guest on the show is Dr. Bernadette Bowden-Albala, Director and Founding Dean of the Program in Public Health, Professor at Department of Population Health and Disease Prevention, and the Department of Epidemiology at the Samueli College of Health Sciences at UC Irvine. I want you to go like hyper political on with me on this moment there is what is is this a teachable moment to instruct our society as a whole about what we ought to how we ought to rethink access to health care oh i think i think it's totally a teachable moment and 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 people will now be looking at this researchers and scholars will be looking at this moment you know, for years to come saying, could we have prepared better? Um, and, and I think what will happen is what people will, the conclusion that they will come to is preparedness is not just about keeping a virus out of a country, which I think is important, but it's about making sure that we create an equitable system to make everybody less vulnerable to such a terrible virus. Well, Dr. Bodenalbala, I was thinking in terms of just general better health. Well, that's what I'm saying. So less vulnerable means that we are in, um, you know, that we really have health and well-being. Okay. And so, um, so that we get people to be physically fit, to be eating good food, um, you know, nutritious food, to be... Um, to, to feel not being stressed. I mean, there, there's a lot of societal yes. issues that yes. have led to these disparities. And I think it's going to take us a long time as a country to get our hands around this. As I do think we will, I do think that we will be moving forward and really trying to reduce these disparities. So I'd like, let's see if we can roll back this whole pandemic. Let's see, rolling it back maybe maybe two months, maybe up to three months. I'd like for you to, let's say you are the, I don't know, the, the Surgeon General, your, um, you name what, what, what role, a title you'd like, but who do you determine to be the ultimate arbiter of the standards for how personal protection equipment, ventilators, triage centers, and the I mean, even the makeshift morgues is a, is a part of all these protocols. Who should be the ultimate arbiter of all these? Uh, you know, that's a, I mean, I think that's a great question. Um, I think that there is a real role for, first of all, evidence should be the ultimate arbitrator. <laughs> evidence. <laughs> we, we have to get back to, we have to get back to good old fashioned evidence, something that we seem to have missed. 
uh, lately. And um, we have to base decisions on what the evidence shows. So that's the first thing. And I, and I do think that um, here, these healthcare delivery protocols, I mean, that is really something that mm -hmm. WHO and the NCDC should be involved in. And there should be arm's length between government agencies and the CDC. I worry, I worried in China, that's why we didn't, we didn't take heed to everything that happened mm -hmm. in China, because I think a lot of people feel like the, the government in China is, you know, is not the kind of government that we would want to have in the United States, and, and they're not transparent, and so we're not going to take anything that they said, and look how terrible they forced everybody into their houses and quarantined everybody, and, and we're not like that. Um, but, but I think that we need a standard group of people making those decisions and Where's those that? people i think those people have to be the, the cdc it here is. in the country okay. the who throughout the world and i think they must not be under the influence of other people that move in and out of leadership positions they must be sustained and they must stand for evidence based and for science so does all this, um, all these different parties, moving targets, bidding wars, this must make you as nervous as the, the next smart person. It does, it does. And I can't even tell you how many times I've heard people say things like, we have the capacity to do this, or we have the capacity to do that. And it's just lies, lies. And so this is, this is really, really problematic. Health and wellness needs to be put in a very different category um, then, you know, then sort of the bottom line, you know, dollar that, um, you know, the board of directors and shareholders will make from a company because it's dangerous otherwise. So I've been wondering since the Los Angeles Times published about three weeks ago, a pulmonologist named Dr. Gordon Wong in Sacramento has developed a ventilator that is cheap, that is quickly produced, and I believe the Veterans Administration representatives, they wanted to get, to boot up his design and get this going. And I never saw any pickup after that story broke in the Los Angeles Times. And I'm still seeing super expensive ventilators that uh, governors and sub subunits are chasing after. Are, do you have a, any reaction to what could be happening and why a story like that would just disappear? I mean, they were going to be very cheap ventilators and they're going to be very easy to use. Yeah, I, I think that I think that that's disgraceful. If the ventilator um, has been shown to be as efficacious or effective as the ventilators that are out there that can be produced in a you know in a cost benefit in a you know in a cost, cost effective way. manner yes yes and um, there there's no reason why we shouldn't be using those and I applaud I have to say I applaud people that are going to be doing investigative reporting on this because this is critical it's very hard we're in a global pandemic I mean can you imagine did you ever think in your life that you're going to be saying that um, we're in a global pandemic um, and so you know there's there's a lot of things that get missed 
but we can't allow that to happen. So it's important that you all, uh, as journalists, remain vigilant. And again, we all, as scientists, are able to evaluate without any bias uh, and, and then implement what is really going to work. So, well, so this- I'm going to look into that now that you've, you've told me. I think I read about this hopeful uh, ventilator. And you know what? I heard nothing else. Nothing. It stopped. Yeah. And apparently the, he's been working with Capital Ventures to invest in his product and he's going to start running the tab up from there. It's a, it's, a, it's a concerning story. And I guess to your earlier point about the, an independent, autonomous and effective CDC, that would have been, had it performed well, it would have been on top of that development and this distribution would have been happening by now. We wouldn't be talking about right. like and, and, I, and I, I do want to, yeah, I agree. And I do, I do also want to shout out uh, to, I think, you know, that, that people like um, Fauci have been under extreme threat. Oh. And I think though he has actually done a very, very good job in informing the public, but I, I, I can't imagine mm-hmm. um, how stressful, these, uh, you know, his position is right now. It's jujitsu. It's pure jujitsu that he can sort of go in with with fact based science and sort of work around the kind of uh, right the, the political shockwaves that everybody else is susceptible in that inside the task force. There. Well, I right. I I want to give you a chance to talk to what how you have a role in and your concern about the UCI students' disposition, how they're coping mentally and physically with this. This, this change was super abrupt for them. So talk about your role in uh, administering to that huge change up they're trying to adapt to. Yeah, so I just want to sort of preface this very quickly by saying, um, and, and, and this, is, this is the truth, that in early January, when okay. we all began to start seeing um, that COVID-19 didn't even have a name at that point, was really, you know, sending shockwaves through China, even though there was obviously concern about uh, issues of transparency and were we getting all the right information, that that at UCI, that the chancellor called a small group together to think through, you know, kind of emergency management and as that moved forward. And this is important because I don't believe that that happened in many other places. And so, and, and public health was brought to the table. I was very lucky to be on that committee. And, um, and so I very quickly, not I, my, the, the public health program very quickly realized that there were things that we should be able to do with students. This is back in late January, early February. Okay. And so we began being very vigilant. We, we rented um, portable sinks. We made videos and we taught students how to wash their hands, how to think about things. We were in a terrible flu season this year as well, mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. you didn't know that. Um, and we, so what we thought is, well, we could, we could always anticipate COVID coming, not obviously to the extent that it did, but at the same time, we could, we could just practice good health and hygiene and get these students to do that. And we did a series of surveys in between these interventions, found that we got, we got an uptake in hand washing vigilance and understanding um, issues related to viral spread. 
okay? And we kept it COVID, but we also talked about flu. And this was really important. So this was among about 2,000 students. So this is a lot. So, but we started literally, we, we started having these conversations through communication with our students about COVID. And we, we gauged how concerned they were. And from the very mm. beginning, mm -hmm. about 60% of the students that responded said that, you know, they were concerned and they were watching the information as it unveiled itself. And I think that that's, that's really very reasonable. Very few students said they were freaked out or worried. But the concern level, you know, the majority of students stayed at the same concern level on that second series of questions, but more of them. So now we ended up with over 70% of students saying that they were suitably concerned. I'm saying suitably, but they were, their concern level was appropriate for what was happening um, and that they would continue to watch for more information. And so I, I want to point out that what we, we started then about two weeks before we actually um, went remote on campus starting to talk about the concept of social distancing. And, okay. and I, I'm really proud that we on this college campus, we were able to evolve students thinking from just washing your hands to social distancing. So when we, when not, when the chancellor made the decision to go remote, um, I can't help but feel that students um, that it wasn't as big of a shock as it was to other students. And just so you know, we're, we're doing other surveys to the whole student okay. body that Good. is home now. And we are gauging their level of concern, um, issues surrounding anxiety, stress, depression, and stigma, because um, we have a very large um, Asian population on our campus. Um, and I think that there was some concern that some students were feeling stigmatized because this virus came from, you know, from China, from, from Asia. And so we wanted to make sure that, uh, that our students felt good and we're still making sure. So now, now our students are remote, most of them, and all of our faculty, we've been engaging with faculty to make sure that we do not increase anxiety and that we really try to gauge students' level of stress. And this has been, again, an all-out university effort um, and there are resources, everything has moved over to being remote, but there are a tremendous amount of resources and the indicators if we think if students are, you know, not doing well or being stressed. This is, a, this is an unprecedented event for everybody, but to your point, coping with our students, our UCI students are some of the brightest students in the country. <laughs> um, they're extremely competitive. Now we, we sort of throw out that competitive edge and tell everyone that they have to go home. And, you know, some people are going home some people are going into homes that are not happy, that are not healthy. Um, and, and how do we handle that? For, for some students, the college dorm, um, you know, was a, a really positive place, a refuge. And so how, how do we point. handle uh, some of those issues? And so we are trying very hard 
continue to take the pulse of our students to make them aware of everything that is out there for them in terms of resources and at the same time concurrently training our faculty so that our faculty um, you know get these cues from the students even though it's remote that there are issues and so we really want to make sure this is it's a very difficult time what about the four students that were seniors this was their last quarter they were going to graduate they, they've lost all of that um, you know um, students who were taking lab courses you know are now doing kind of interesting things online but it's not the same thing right, right they've right. lost that and um, so this is a this is this is sobering for everybody and we can't forget um, our students and we really have to make sure that they they have the support also not only when they left did they have to go remote to all different situations but a lot of them lost jobs they had money that um, they were making for, to, to support themselves and sometimes to support their families I mean we have students that don't even have homes um, and this is you know this is really really sad it impacts everybody it, it's devastating so we're just trying very hard working with uh, our health and wellness group to, to really continue to support them well i'm going to add with the podcast summary all the numbers to call for people that are having difficulties at home that because the local sheriff has posted a, an increase in abuse calls over all aspects of yeah. household living. So I will put that on there. But I would like as the final question to this interview to be, what's the effect of a pandemic on enrollment in public health? Does it drive it up or does it drive it down? Yeah, so we have to try to find the, we have to try to find the, the or or leverage a bad situation and sort of make sure that we can get something good from it um there are hundreds of thousands of students sitting in their homes now watching cnn or whatever channel they watch with their parents and um they're saying some of them hey i want to be an epidemiologist or, okay hey i want to work in communities and do health education um you know wow i didn't realize i thought you had to be a, a medical doctor to do that but you don't wow I, we've already seen a tripling in the number of students who have accepted for next year into wow. our mph program we had a small program we're growing that program and um so we've seen this tripling and i think that other public universities are going to see that. I think that the private education is, is really going to have some problems. People, you know, don't have um, the economic resources that, that they used to have. But, but back to sort of public health education, you know, I have a, a four-year-old granddaughter, Lily, who lives in Washington, D.C., and I'm desperate to see her. Yes. Um, and so when I call her on Zoom and I recently said to her, I said, oh, Lily, did you talk to your class on Zoom? Because she has a little four-year-old preschool class, and she, oh. she calls me she calls me BB, Beebs, oh. and she said to me, Beebs, they were fine, no coronavirus in that group. Oh, fine. That's oh. That's what my four-year-old friend wow. said. So, you know, and I don't know. I, I smiled, but I'm sad, too. No, no four-year-old should have to know about coronavirus. No. Well, Dean 
Bowden Albala, I really thank you so much for giving us all this time today. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been my pleasure speaking with you. Happy to speak again anytime. Thank you. Bernadette Bowden Albala is the director and founding dean of the program in public health and the professor of the Department of Public Health and Disease Prevention and Department of Epidemiology at the Samueli College of Health Sciences at UC Irvine. We're also going to start uh, training students to do contact tracing, um, you know, sort of preparing them uh, to work with um, the Orange County Healthcare, you know, in a professional role and being trained to do that. And that's coming down in many places throughout California because we don't, one of the things Orange County Healthcare Agency doesn't have is they don't have the bandwidth for something like yeah, this. And that's right. the only yeah. way that we're ever, we're ever, we're ever going to open up a restaurant to eat there or open up a theater or anything like that is if we have a really good program in place that uh, that diagnoses immediately, that isolates those that are positive, and that it does contact tracing. So we stop this transmission, you know, we just stop it in its place. And um, that that is something that Orange County Healthcare believes in and wants to collaborate with us on because that they, they really are going to have a hard time doing alone in a county of 3 million people. When we overcome the, uh, these disparities in healthcare delivery. 